Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hello, it's me again, Lacey Bonar-Hall, and I'm here with the second installment in the mini-series on rumor and gossip at the Tudor Court. Today's episode is a continuation of our investigation into rumors concerning the Boleyn family at the court of Henry VIII. On the last episode in this series, I chatted with Dr. Kristen Bundesen about Mary Boleyn and her rumored relationship with the kings of both England and France. So if you haven't listened to it yet, be sure to check that episode out. Today, we'll be learning about the other two Boleyn siblings, Anne and George, and I'm excited to share that my guest on today's episode is Kate McCaffrey, an historian and assistant curator at Anne Boleyn's childhood home of Heber Castle in Kent. Kate recently graduated from her master's degree in medieval and early modern studies from the University of Kent, where her thesis focused on groundbreaking new evidence she uncovered in one of Anne Boleyn's printed books of hours held at Hever Castle. She has just co-curated the Becoming Anne Connections Culture Court exhibition running this year at Hever and has co-authored the accompanying book entitled Becoming Anne alongside Dr. Owen Emerson. Kate has some fantastic insight into the lives of Anne and George, especially concerning the rumor of an affair of incest between the two that led to the downfall of the Boleyn family. Let's begin. Hi, Kate. How are you? Hi, I'm so good. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. So I am really excited to be chatting with you today about two of the most famous people at Henry VIII's court and two members of the Boleyn family. We're going to be chatting about Anne and George. So time's a little tight. I know there's a ton that we could talk about with the two of them. Mm -hmm. Let's just go ahead and jump right in. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. All right. (laughs) So what do we know about Anne and George's relationship before Henry VIII lodged any accusations against the siblings? Did they get along with one another and with others at Henry's court? Okay, so I would say if we're summing up their relationship, we could just simply say that they were as thick as thieves. They were very close friends. Uh, We know that George is entrusted by both Anne and Henry as the message bearer for their courtship, which shows how much Anne trusted him. We know that Anne and George share a love of languages, religious reform, art, music, poetry. Um, We have a wonderful text that survives uh, with uh, George's transcription and translation of a radical religious text. It's uh, the Epistles and Gospels for the 52 weeks of the year by uh, Jacques Lefebvre de Table. Um, And he translated this for Anne and he wrote a a beautiful personalised introduction, dedication to the book which I think actually gives a really good portal into George and Anne's uh, close relationship. But, you know, he talks of himself there as her most loving and friendly brother. He speaks of their perpetual bond of blood. And there's something of a cheekiness as well in the dedication, I think, um, with George. He talks about Anne's meek fashion, which, of course, we know she was never particularly (laughs) famed for. 
Um, and then he's also sort of seemingly self-deprecating when he talks of the weakness of my dull wit, which, again, George was famed for his intelligence. So I think we see a real insight there, even in the seriousness of this translated text and, and their shared love of religious reform. We kind of see that tongue-in-cheek, um, brotherly, sisterly banter between yeah. them. I love that. That I, I think that gives you some great insight into more of like the personal relationship between the two of yeah. them. And I love how how witty they both were, uh, but especially George. I think that's it's yes. fun to, to get a little bit of insight into his humor. So we know they were close with each other. Did they have pretty good reputations at court? I know Anne's was a little um, divided, I think, to say the least. But can you give us any information just on how the, the two of them would have been perceived by others at the court? Mm, yeah, so I think, um, obviously, the Berlins at, at this time, uh, during their rise to fame, they're quite controversial some people love them or hate them probably as they do today um, but I think I mean the outstanding research for example of Dr Laura Mackay um, in her reappraisal of the Berlin men she sort of noted that George's career is almost somewhat hampered by being in Anne's shadow I think at, at times um, so perhaps we have this idea of George willingly sacrificing his own advancement in order to um, aid his sister um, so I think that probably might have been a perception of them both as well. I think they would definitely seem to be very close. Um, but Anne was the shining star of the Berlin family and, and, and the others sort of let her be and, and helped her on her way. Sure, that makes sense. And that's that's actually obviously kind of how things uh, remain today, where when you think of the name Berlin, you think of Anne first and foremost, for good reason. Uh, but But I do like, you know, trying to understand a little bit more how she fit in with her family mm-hmm. because the family itself is just fascinating as you know. Well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so fascinating. Yeah, they are. Okay. So now we have to talk about that rumor. So what was the big accusation Anne and George faced in May of 1536? Yes. So in uh, on the 2nd of May, 1536 is when Anne is arrested. Uh, she's arrested in the morning and she's taken to the Tower of London in the afternoon. Um, she gets there around 5 p.m. George is arrested in the afternoon of the 2nd of May. Uh, so after Anne, but he probably arrives at the Tower before her at around 2 p.m. Um, and it's actually been suggested by the wonderful historian Claire Ridgway that George may have actually been trying to reach the king to petition for his sister uh, when he himself was arrested. And we know that there was a lot of confusion initially around why they were arrested. Um, Not even Eustace Chapuis, who is notoriously anti-Berlin, could sort of account for why George had been arrested. And uh, he simply believed that uh, her brother is imprisoned for not giving information of her crime. So that's what it was initially thought. But what they were actually charged with uh, was incest and adultery. So Anne was charged with adultery with five men, including her own brother, And that's what George was charged with. He was charged with incest. Um, And I think when that charge of incest was revealed, it understandably, and as I believe it was meant to, sent huge shockwaves through the court. Um, You know, it's particularly sort of explicit and lurid accusations. um, And, you know, they specifically spoke of, of Anne alluring George with her tongue in his mouth and his in hers and It was a charge, I think, completely and utterly meant to uh, shatter Anne's reputation, uh, but also annihilate the Berlin faction at court. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's I mean, it's it's quite a charge. It's one that I think uh, 
was seen as being indefensible, that something so heinous had to be lodged against them to bring down such a powerful faction. Uh, And I, I think you speak to that really, really well. Now, this this next question is is probably one that, uh, that I think most of us uh, would agree on the answer to. But I do I do want to talk about this with you for a minute, just as our resident and specialist. So, do you think it's possible that this rumor had any basis in reality? Okay, so I'm a firm believer, as I think, like you said, most of us today are, uh, that it's almost certain that Anne did not sleep with any of the men that she was accused of betraying Henry with, including her brother, George. Um, We have lots of evidence. I mean, for example, the late and great historian, Eric Ives, who is probably Anne's most famous biographer, he established that in at least 12 cases where Anne was accused, there was no literal possibility that she could have been with the men in question on those dates. She was completely in a different location for most of the dates that, that were detailed, which is astounding really that sort of basic facts like that were wrong and I think sort of speaks to um, the fact that that they knew what the decision was going to be they they didn't have to find um, evidence that was believable really Um, but it's a particularly pernicious charge I think it it must have been so painful for both George and Anne to to bear that as they were so close Uh, and also obviously for the rest of the Boleyn family as well but um, perhaps it was their closeness and their obvious closeness as siblings that made it an easier charge to levy. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's interesting when you look at how flimsy at best or really non-existent mm-hmm. the evidence is, but like you said, I think it was just an open and shut case that mm-hmm. they, they knew what the verdict would be and they knew that they didn't really have to worry about the any sort of burden of proof. So so that brings us to the next question that I don't and I don't know if you know if you can actually uh, answer this one or you know maybe just kind of give us like your best guess. But so do we have any ideas of where this particular rumor started and who might have been responsible for spreading it? And is it true that George's wife, Jane Parker Bolin, may have spread this gossip at court? Yeah, so this is obviously a really interesting question. I think um, Jane Boleyn, Nay Parker, uh, she's obviously historically taken the blame for betraying her husband, George, and her sister-in-law, Anne. But really, contrary to those claims, there's absolutely no contemporary evidence to suggest that Jane actually did betray them. Uh, there's a source that claims that Jane confessed on the scaffold after um, that she had betrayed her husband, but this was actually a forgery created in the 19th century uh, by the prolific forger Gregorio Letty. Um, and Eustace Chapuis never named Jane as Anne's accuser. And I think that's a really important point to consider when such a revelation coming from a close member of the family would have actually strengthened the case of Anne being guilty you know, if her sister-in-law is is clearly saying that that her brother and her, her sister-in-law have been sleeping together, then you think that that would have been mentioned in the evidence um, in terms of strengthening the case. We also know that Jane um, tried to visit George in the tower. She tried to intervene on his part. Um, and George himself never named his wife uh, as an accuser. Uh, he, he states in his trial on the evidence of only one woman, you are willing to believe this great evil of me. And on the basis of her allegations, you are deciding my judgment. But you would think that if 
that woman was his wife, mm. he would mention her name. Um, and I think it's also an important question to consider that if Jane had betrayed her husband and also her, her employer, the Queen, why would Henry's subsequent subsequent Queen consorts have been so keen to have Jane in their service? Because we know that Jane served uh, Jane Seymour, um, Anne of Cleves, and then obviously Catherine Howard. So there's all sorts of sort of interesting points, I think. Um, but I, I really do think that um, we'll never know for sure, probably, who the, the woman that George Boleyn spoke of was or, or really who the main accusers were. Um, but I think when we look at all of the evidence, I, I don't think it could have been his wife, Jane. I think, you know, she became an easy scapegoat in popular memory. Um, she plays that kind of bitter, unloved wife trope. Um, and it's easy to blame her, but but really there's no sort of contemporary foundation for that whatsoever. Okay, that sounds good. I like to I like to try and dispel the myths around, especially some of these women in history that yes. I do, I feel like they just they easily fall into that trope, like you said, that that they're the villain or that they're the person responsible mm-hmm. for the downfall of such a great family when I think with Jane, I mean, it, you know, her, her later role in the courts or on the, um, in the employee of Henry's future Queens. I think that speaks a lot to how it was doubtful that people at the time would have thought that she played a significant role in the charges against her husband and Anne. But also I just, I feel like she wouldn't have really had the power or the agency needed at the time to be able to, to just kick off this completely life-shattering um set of accusations for so many people i think what is more likely is that it would have been someone like cromwell who had the ear of the king and was very trusted uh whether you know he lodged these accusations at henry's request or if it was you know something more of his own doing i think Mm -hmm. that is where you see a more likely scenario for the person to who might have started uh, this rumor against Anne and George rather than someone who was in the Bolin family who would have faced just significant ruin herself if she had been the person who who had lodged uh, these charges against them. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I I think I think Cromwell definitely is, is also who I would agree with as being you know, the orchestrator behind um, these events, whether acting alone or, or on the orders of Henry or a combination of both. But I think certainly you can see his hand behind a lot of it. I think so too. I think I think the combination of both, uh, in my in my opinion, obviously as someone uh, who's you know five hundred years removed, uh, <laughs> you if you're looking at sort of like the Occam's razor of it, where the the most obvious answer is often the correct one. Um, I think yes. I think Henry and Cromwell teaming up is yes. probably the most likely scenario. But it's interesting that so much blame does get laid at the feet of of George's wife. And something that his, I mean, like like the accusations against Anne, uh, mm-hmm. something that has really survived down the centuries is this negative reputation of James that I think a lot of people now are starting to say is not deserved. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so we have our last question. So can you tell us a bit about the fallout 
from this rumor. So obviously Anne and George ended up losing their lives, but can you give us any information on what happened to the other Bolins? So in particular, their parents, Thomas and Elizabeth and their sister, Mary. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like we just touched on, I think the orchestration of the accusations against Anne and George were an absolute political masterstroke uh, by Cromwell who really managed to to wipe out the entire Boleyn faction at court pretty much overnight. Uh, So it's safe to say, I think, that the downfall of Anne and George was the death knell, really, of the Boleyns of Hever Castle. Um, And here I have to shout out my great friend and brilliant colleague, Dr. Ern Emerson's book, uh, which he co-wrote with with Claire Ridgway, uh, called The Boleyns of Hever Castle. And that looks at all the generations of the Boleyns here, including uh, the aftermath of the executions. And we know that, that Thomas and Elizabeth retire here to Hever uh, in the immediate aftermath of their children's downfall. Thomas is stripped of his duty as Lord Privy Seal um, in favour of Thomas Cromwell. Um, Cromwell sort of continues to harass Thomas, really, who is no doubt still grieving himself. Um, and over the next year, we see uh, legal subsidies and rents you know, being begged to pay. And I think um, in the replies that Thomas sends to Cromwell, we can see really how much he is still grieving and how how much he has really sort of become a broken man, um, obviously losing his two children and in what is the most horrific way possible, really. Um, In terms of Elizabeth, his wife and Anne's mother, we know that she was unwell when when Anne and George were arrested. And we know actually that Anne was worried in the tower that that her mother might die of grief. Um, And those sort of fears proved to be astute, really, because Elizabeth died uh, not two years later, uh, on the 3rd of April, 1538. Thomas had no choice as well uh, after the executions of his children to return to court life. Um, He still had a family and households to support. But between duties, uh, such as being present at Prince Edward's christening, um, he chose to spend most of his time at Hever. Um, and as Lauren Mackay stated, there appears, appears to have been a reconciliation between Thomas and, and Mary, his daughter, uh, which is really nice to see because we, we know this because he left lands and property for Mary in his will when he passed away. Um, we know obviously that Thomas had previously fallen out with Mary when uh, she married William Stafford without familial um, or monarchical consent. But they do seem to have eventually reconciled. And it was at Hever that that Thomas spent his final days. He died uh, in the castle on the 12th of March, 1539. And I I think it's quite moving, really, that the Boleyns died without any inkling that Elizabeth, Anne's only surviving child, would one day inherit the throne and that a Boleyn would become the Queen of England. And that that gives you goosebumps. Uh, Yeah, just to think that I mean, in in my opinion, Elizabeth is one of, if not the most successful monarch um, of the Tudor period. But I mean, really, if if you're just looking at English history, it's hard to beat Elizabeth I. And I think that her Boleyn ties, they're often um, minimized. And I think that's something that we're starting to see, like you've been mentioning in a lot of this recent scholarship, that that it, it sort of needs to be rehabilitated. You know, Elizabeth yes. was a Bolin. She came from the Bolin family, and we know that she really valued those relationships that she had with her surviving Bolin relatives, especially with Mary Bolin's children in particular. Exactly. And it's, it's just so, it's sad that Thomas and Elizabeth didn't get to see that. Yes. 
sort of the, the culmination of the Bolin family's power. But I also like what you said about Heber being sort of like a refuge for Thomas, mm-hmm. because we so often Thomas is discussed as being, you know, like a, a callous man, someone who was just seeking after power and used his daughters, especially to try and achieve power. And I, I don't think that that was the case. And I think you speak really well to that in talking about the aftermath of Anne and George's death for Thomas and Elizabeth, but especially, you know, Thomas, that he was still expected to Mm -hmm. hold these roles at court. And I mean, he knew better than anyone else that you don't cross Henry and you don't try and challenge him at all. If he tells you that you have to be at the christening of his son, you have to be at the christening of his son. You don't really have to say no. No, you don't. Exactly. You don't you know, to him. No. And, and Thomas knew that. And I think for a lot of people, they take that as being a sign that he just shrugged off the death of mm-hmm. his two just beloved children. I mean, you can you can tell that how proud he was of them and how much. Time, yeah, how he Hugely. cared about them as a father mm-hmm. and to know that he that he had to balance the role that was expected of him at court with his role as a grieving father. It's just, I think it's, it's really touching to think about that side of Thomas and to know that Heber did sort of serve as a place where he could go to, to try and escape it all for the years that, yeah, that he had left. And I think, yeah, I think it's a really touching echo really of how Anne used Heber, um, you know, to escape court and escape the madness of court during her rise to, to, power you know she would come back here and and, and use it as that country escape and I think Thomas very much used it in a similar way as a refuge after the death of Anne and George and I think yeah you're so right that um it's really important that we don't just take the traditional narrative of him as the villain um for granted and we don't just take that without questioning it and a lot of wonderful scholarship has been done recently to sort of change our perspective of that and I think absolutely we have to remember he was a grieving father as well as um you know a politician yeah, I love I love that. I think that's a good place to end. Um, thank you so much, Kate, for for coming on and talking about these rumors and I feel like really dispelling uh, any notion of truth behind really any of the rumors that have been lodged against the Bolin family. I think this is it's it's a good conversation to have. It's a meaningful one. And thank you so much for being the person to discuss this with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to dispel these myths. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.